Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel Podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker was Dr. Chip Pollard. Dr. Pollard has been the president of John Brown University since 2004. Prior to coming to JBU, he taught English at Calvin College and practiced law in Chicago. Welcome to this opening chapel of the spring semester John Brown University. And this is the day that you can call all your friends that went to Bethel and say, it's going to be 65 degrees at my college. It's going to be 30 degrees at your college. So it feels like spring today. We're studying First and Second Timothy this semester. And by way of introduction, we're going to look at the first two verses of First Timothy. So if you want to read with me, listen to the word of God. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Excuse me. Now, formal letter writing has declined for quite some time, and it's pretty much dead today with the availability of email and text and direct messaging. And with the loss of formal letter writing, we've also lost the practice of salutation and valediction. I don't even know what those words mean. The technical words for the greeting and the closing of a letter. In fact, and maybe your parents do this occasionally, when I occasionally put at the end of my text, love dad, uh, my kids usually send me a note back says, with a smiley face that says, yeah, we know it's you. <laughs> However, it's important to know what are the expectations for the formal opening of a letter in order to understand scripture. And the first two verses of First Timothy are what they call the salutation, the greeting for Paul's letter. And there's three expectations that a greeting must have. It first is the identification of the author of the letter, in this case, Paul. Second, an identification of who is his audience. And the audience is a particular person. It's Timothy, his mentee and his friend, whom he calls his true child in the faith. And third, the salutation includes the actual greeting itself. What are we saying to my friend? And he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So with that background, I really want to look at two things from these first two verses. I want to look at the relationship between Paul and Timothy. And second, I want to look at Paul's greeting to Timothy, this grace, mercy, and peace. Now, before we look at Paul and Timothy, let me share one of my stories of my, one of my intergenerational friends. So 42 years ago, I was entering my freshman year of college. We have about 32 new people that are entering college or coming back to college this semester. I had a lot of interest, but very little direction. I loved to read, but I was also kind of good at mathematics. Mathematics, I loved sports, but I wasn't good enough at sports to play at college. So I had an intramural career. Uh, I sort of had a girlfriend. Her name was Carrie. But when we entered college, we decided that we were not gonna date at the beginning of college. That had only lasted for about four weeks when one of my new college friends said, why do you hang around this girl all the time? Your friends always know that you're dating before you're willing to admit it, right? 
I was a bit of a mess. I was both anxious and exhilarated. I was energized and exhausted. I was hopeful and I was frightened. I was constantly wondering how I might measure up in this world. I was, in other words, a very normal freshman. I wasn't sure what to study, which was obvious when you looked at my course schedule. I took literature of the Western world and calculus, but I soon dropped calculus because I'd much rather read stories than do problem sets. I looked to take intro to psych because I thought maybe I could figure out who I was by taking psych. And I took introduction to Koine Greek or Biblical Greek because I was not very good at speaking modern languages and there was no speaking lab for Greek. I also wanted to understand the Bible better and I knew the professor. His name was Dr. Jerry Hawthorne because he went to my church. That Greek class changed my life, not because of the content, but because of the character of the professor. Dr. Hawthorne taught Greek as if he and the students' lives depended upon it. Even as we were just starting to learn the alphabet and a few words, he would give devotions about a phrase from scripture and reflect on how the very structure of the Greek language was able to tell us new spiritual truths. He pushed us to excel, but also provided the support and reassurance so that we would not get discouraged. He was the kind of teacher that you would work harder because you did not want to disappoint him. When you went to his office for help, he made you feel as if you were doing him a favor because you cared so much about Greek. And these office visits were never limited to just the subject matter of the class. He would gently ask you about your life, your roommate, your church, your girlfriend, your job, and then he would carefully listen to your response. He rarely gave advice, but his questions would often help you clarify your thoughts. Even after I finished four semesters of Greek, I would stop by to talk to him. Even after I graduated from college, I'd go when I was in home, my hometown to see him for breakfast or lunch whenever I could. As I was contemplating going back to graduate school, he was one of the first persons that I called for his advice. He was some 35 to 40 years older than I, but we became intergenerational friends for some 30 years. One of the last times I saw him before he passed away, he asked about my youngest son. And so he said, how is Ann James doing? And I asked him, why do you use that phrase? Why do you say Ann James? And he smiled at me and said, I've been regularly praying for your children. And I say, God be with Chad and Emma, Ben and Emma and James. Tears came to my eyes because I thought my professor that I knew for 30 years had been praying for my kids and I didn't even know it. But I'm a different person because of Jerry's example in my life. Tonight, I start, I think, my 31st year of teaching college students. Because I'll have a class tonight with some of the honor students. <laughs> Are you in the class? Okay. Carrie cooks dinner for this class, and I think 90% of the people are there for the dinner and 10% are there for the literature. <laughs> um, but I've taught every year, even as a president, because I knew Jerry Hawthorne, and when I, I said to myself, when I grow up, I want to be like Jerry Hawthorne. Paul had a similar relationship to Timothy. Paul was probably 15 to 20 years older than Timothy, and the, the Bible describes their personal press, professional life over 20 years. Timothy came from a Christian home. Both his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice were early Jewish converts to Christianity. But Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And he was likely perhaps raised more Greek than 
Jewish because he had never been circumcised. He, in fact, he agreed to undergo adult circumcision at Paul's request so that he would be more easily accepted into Jewish synagogues to preach the gospel. That's real commitment to the ministry when you're willing to undergo adult circumcision. Paul had deep affection for Timothy. He called him his co-worker, his son, his child, his brother. Timothy was also the most trusted assistant of Paul's, often assigned by Paul to travel on his behalf to distant churches or regions. But Paul also makes clear that Timothy had his own calling to follow Christ. He told the Corinthians that, he was, that Timothy was doing the work of the Lord just as I am. Paul gives Timothy advice about lots of things, spiritual matters, about leadership, even how to take care of his physical body. Paul doesn't just write letters to Timothy, he writes with Timothy several letters of the New Testament. Paul tells the Philippians that I have no one like Timothy. And Paul asks Timothy to come to Rome quickly when he is alone and he's about to be executed. Paul and Timothy have a deep and mutual friendship. So as we read First and Second Timothy this semester, we should think about it's a letters between deep friends, even though they're a different age group. So why is it important that we have these intergenerational friendships? I think they're important for several reasons. One is it helps us to gain a perspective on ourselves and our world. Everyone is caught in the time in which they grew up. And they need to help to see the world from a time that's different than the time in which they grew up. Let me give you an example. When I was young, we had four TV stations, ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS. And it was common, very common, for everyone to sit around one TV and watch a TV show. And not just in one house, but all across the country, right? You've grown up in a culture of unlimited video content that is distributed on all sorts of devices. And rarely, sometimes, but rarely do people watch the same thing at the same time. Now, I don't, I'm not thinking that my way is better than your way. It's just different ways to think about consuming the news or consuming information. We've grown up in different time horizons. I might be able to help you understand why traditional news sources with their editing and journalistic standards might be a good way to understand the world. And you might help me understand how the latest trends on social media reflect the concerns of people in a variety of places in the US and around the world. Let me give you another example. An older person has tended to suffer more in life just because they've lived longer. They've lost loved ones. They have setbacks in their careers. They've had their heart broken by romance or by friends. They've navigated difficult relationships. And if those older people are open to the lessons that God teaches through suffering, they've gained wisdom, which is God's way to respond to life. The wise older person can help her younger friends see the lessons learned in suffering, can give them strength to preserve through difficult times in life, can help them see how this difficulty won't last forever. They can share the lessons of wisdom that they've learned. They can give perspective that enables a younger person to handle the difficulties of life. Job writes, wisdom belongs to the aged and understanding to the old. Similarly, young people are flexible, adventurous. They have energy. <laughs> They're open to new experiences. They shout out in the middle of chapel. Uh, they're, and they, they can help their older friends who sometimes are too settled in their ways, who think they have all the answers, who might be afraid to change to reach new people. Proverbs says, the glory of young men, young men and women is their strength. 
Older Christians can offer young persons the lessons of faithful life, good friendships, and a loving marriage. Younger Christians can provide the energy and passion to stretch an older person to learn new things. I came into chapel today. I have lots of things on my mind, but when I heard your voices and the strength of your voices, it encouraged me in ways that would never happen other than being in this room with you. Older faithful Christians have spent a lifetime sometimes in prayer and reading the Bible and church and worship, which has deepened their love of God. Younger faithful Christians may, may be more open to engage people who come from different backgrounds and who've been ignored by the church or abandoned by the church. We need intergenerational friendships like Paul and Timothy to stretch one another to follow Christ. A university is a great place to have these types of friendships because we naturally live and learn together. Personally, I love being at the university because I grow older each year, but the people that I hang out with stay the same age, JV students, 18 to 23. And I learn new things from you all the time. So let me offer you a few practical steps. You say, yeah, I'd love to have a relationship with an older person. How do I go about doing that? Let me offer you a few practical steps. First, don't be afraid to ask. Ask somebody you admire to go to lunch, to have coffee, to ask them questions about their life. Most people are really very open, if you initiate, to talk with you. Second, don't get alarmed if they say no when you ask someone. Sometimes people have other things going on in their lives. It may be personal, it may be family, it may be professional, that they're just not in a place that they can do that. Don't take it personally, right? Just ask somebody else. Third, and I think this is one of the most important ways, volunteer to help an older person so that your friendship comes out of mutual work. Take on a role as a grader for a faculty member. Become the manager of the basketball team. Volunteer for a work-study position with somebody in the business office. Offer to babysit for a family that you really admire. Spend some time helping the department assistant. Put yourself in a natural position of working alongside an older person. And in that relationship, you will develop a friendship. And finally, be aware that some of the best Christian mentors might be people you do not expect. When I first came to JV, one of the coaches said to me that he always liked it. One of his players got on the grounds crew or the maintenance staff. I was puzzled at first. I thought perhaps he wanted his, you know, his players to continue to work out, even like on the grounds crew or something to get stronger. But he said, no. He said, I just so appreciate how our grounds and maintenance crew teach students valuable life lessons and mentor their work-study students in the Christian faith. I found that to be true. Some of our greatest Christian mentors are some of our people that are in the staff and grounds and maintenance. I found also that most people, no matter what their job title at JBU, are here primarily to serve students and to be in relationship with you. So for instance, I know one of department assistant right now who's running a Bible study for some 10 to 12 women, and I could not think of a better person for them to get to know. We have about 100 faculty and staff, student development and coaches at JBU. We have 200 other staff people here. Look for intergenerational relationships among all the people who work here. And you might find yourself learning from people that you had never expected to. So the mentoring, that's the first part. Second part, what does Paul wish for Timothy? He wishes for him grace, mercy, and peace. So that's the second lesson. That's the second lesson. We tend to brush over these words because they're church words. We've heard them so often we don't know what they mean anymore. But let's look at each of these words briefly in the context of an older person, what an older person might wish for their younger friend. So first of all, grace. 
A biblical understanding of grace actually has two meanings. First, grace describes God's character. It's his undeserved favor or kindness towards us. God loves us even though we don't deserve it. Right? God extends his grace to us even though we don't deserve it. And in fact, we actively resist it. Yet he still extends his kindness to us. Second, God's grace describes the power that he gives us to live life well, even though we and the world are broken. Grace is power to live well, and it's power that we could not live well without God's grace. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul writes, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all the sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, Paul calls for grace in Timothy's life. He's hoping that Timothy will feel the gift of God's kindness and the experience, the power of God's love, the gift of his kindness and the power of his love. Grace is something that we all need. Second, mercy. Mercy, again, has two meanings, one focused on God's character and one in our lives. In God's character, grace and mercy are kind of complementary vir virtues, two sides of the same coin. God's grace is his undeserved gift of his favor and kindness, and God's mercy is his undeserved withholding of punishment for our disobedience and rebellion. Now, when you become a parent, you begin to understand this aspect of mercy a little bit better. One of our children, I won't name that child, was a habitual liar, but she also was a terrible liar. We knew every time that she was lying. She had a tell, she could tell every time that she was lying. I just used the pronoun and I only have one daughter, so that's, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> I used to have to pay my kids $10 every time I used them as an example, but they're older now. Uh, <laughs> Carrie and I saw lying as a dangerous habit. It's not only against scripture, but also danger because it undermines trust that's so important in good relationships. However, our, our daughter lied so often that she would have to sit on the stairs in our house all the time if we punished her every time for her lying. Instead, we extended mercy, undeserved withholding of punishment because we loved her. God's mercy in our lives is also seen in our lives he, because he uses it, his mercy to alleviate suffering in the world. And God uses this to expend his practical mercy to others. He uses us to extend this mercy to others. And it happens in all sorts of ways. Mercy is when we feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, give shelter to travelers, heal the sick, visit the prisoner, bury the dead. Mercy is also evident in our spiritual lives when we correct a sinner, or we instruct the ignorant, or we counsel the doubtful, or we comfort someone who's grieving or when we bear wrongs patiently, or we forgive those who hurt us, or when we pray for others. Paul wants Timothy's life to be filled with receiving the mercy from God so that he can extend that mercy to other people. We receive the mercy so that we can give it back out. We are all in need of mercy. Grace, mercy, peace. Finally, Paul wishes Timothy would experience the peace of Christ, which Jesus has promised by saying, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Paul wants Timothy to have a life that is not controlled by anxiety or fear. He wants Timothy's heart not to be troubled or afraid. And our hearts can be troubled in so many ways. By the failure in the class, by worrying about our parents, by a broken relationship, by worrying about money, by 
being lonely, by comparing ourselves to others, by being sick or in sorrow. What Jesus is telling us and what Paul wants for Timothy is a sense of emotional equilibrium that doesn't depend on the circumstances of your life. Paul wants Timothy to experience joy and well-being and wholeness, not because God is making sure everything is going well for Timothy, but because God is with Timothy when everything isn't going well. True peace cannot depend on your circumstances because when circumstances change, and we know they will, you'll be robbed of peace. So how can we avoid having circumstances control our sense of peace? It's only by meditating on God's grace, his undeserved favor and power in our lives, and God's mercy, his undeserved withholding of punishment as mitigation of suffering in our lives. In other words, the three attributes, grace, mercy, and peace, are all mutually self-sustaining. The more we hold on to God's grace, the more we see his mercy and experience his peace. The more we experience his peace, the more we feel the power of his grace to act and conduct, to conduct acts of mercy for others. So let me give you a final example of these three attributes from a story that Carrie and I learned this summer, how God's grace, mercy, and peace work together. We were in Jerusalem this summer on part of two different trips. And each of the, each, it's interesting, each of the trips planned a dinner at, at a place called the American Colony Hotel. The hotel was founded by Horatio and Ann Spafford, who came to Jerusalem in 1881. With, they were part of a group of 18, 16 Christians who came to serve families in need in the Holy Lands. And they opened their doors to everyone. They opened them to Jews and to Arabs and to Bedouin. In other words, they extended mercy. In 1984, some 150 Swedish Christians joined them, and they purchased a palace, which is now eventually became the hotel. And they've offered shelter to travelers for over 100 years in this particular hotel, taking care of strangers, another act of mercy. The American Colony Hotel gained the reputation in Jerusalem as being a neutral place, where people from any ethnic or political background could come and talk to one another. Uh, even during the wars and political uprisings in the, in the uh, city. So as a place of peace, it was also an act of mercy. When we went to the hotel, we didn't know anything about the history, nor do we know this backstory of the Spaffords who came when, when they came to immigrate to Jerusalem. However, when we were in the lobby, we are looking around and we noticed there was this picture and it framed, and it was a picture, handwritten picture, and when you look closely, it was on Chicago letterhead and uh, from a Chicago hotel, and it was handwritten, and it was handwritten uh, copy of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And the history of that hymn explains a lot about the Spafford's ministry in Jerusalem. Horatio and Anne had originally lived in Chicago, and they had suffered difficult losses in their lives. In the spring of 1871, Horatio decided he would invest in real estate in Chicago. Six months later, there was the great Chicago fire, and he lost all of his wealth in the fire, or most of his wealth. In 1873, Horatio Ann had four daughters, and they were gonna go, they were all, the four daughters were all under 12. They made plans to take a ship across the Atlantic to be in England during Dwight Moody's evangelistic crusade. At the last minute, Horatio couldn't go because he had a business problem that was related to the fire, so he sent his wife and his four daughters on ahead of him, and he said, I'll follow you in the next couple of days. On November 12, 1873, as Anne and the four children crossed the Atlantic, 
Their ship was hit by another ship, and their ship sunk in 12 minutes. And the mother survived, but all four daughters drowned. When she arrived in Wales, she sent a telegram to her husband, and all she said was, saved alone. Saved alone. Horatio took the next ship and was out to be with her. The captain of Horatio's ship knew the story about the loss of his children. So when the boat, Horatio boat, was going over the area of the ocean in which his daughters drowned, the, the captain let him know. And in his deep grief, Horatio wrote this, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Now, if you look carefully at the words of the hymn, you'll see how Horatio found peace despite those terrible circumstances. The first stanza speaks of the peace even in the midst of sorrow. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. He's writing this as he's on the boat. Whatever my lot, in other words, whatever my circumstances, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And the second stanza, he speaks of the grace of Christ. The Christ, the Christ who extended unmerited favor to recognize his helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. And the third stanza, he's reminded of mercy of God, Christ. Christ substituting himself to accept the punishment for his sin. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. And then in the final stanza, Horatio puts his ultimate hope, not in the circumstances of life, but in Christ's coming again. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. In the midst of these terrible circumstances, he reminded himself of God's truth that is more enduring than the circumstances of our life. The truth of Jesus' grace, mercy, and peace. So that he could sing, it is well with my soul. Most people know that's part of the story, or some people know that part of the story. And that hymn, which we're going to sing in a moment, is a wonderful hymn. It wasn't the end of his suffering. He lost another child from fever. His church kicked him out. And that's why he moved to Jerusalem. But he continued to have faith that despite the difficulties in his life, it is well with his soul. So we're going to sing Spafford's hand to end the service. But before we do, let me offer to you, following Paul's example, my greetings to you at the beginning of this semester. So, JBU, no matter what your circumstances, you are my dear children in the faith. May your lives be so filled with Christ's grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord that you know in the deepest places of your heart that it is well with your soul. And may you go out of this place to extend Christ's grace, mercy, and peace to everyone you meet. And may it always be true of us at JBU. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, and we'd love it if you'd leave us a review.